Hi, everybody. I'm Mark Stevens, your host for the PR Masters podcast series. Today's podcast is number 71. And as I was telling our guest that I didn't even know we had that many people in the world of public relations. I thought there were only 30 or 40. <laughs> but you are number 71, our very, very special guest today. And I'm going to cut right to the chase because today's guest is Michael Steele. As the first African-American elected to statewide office, and then again with his subsequent chairmanship of the Republican National Committee in 2009. He is well known as a communicator and prognosticator and commentator, essentially on television stations like MSNBC and others. He's a constant guest. I happen to watch MSNBC quite a bit, and I can tell you that I always am in tune with what Michael is saying and his opinions of politics and events of the world. He's right on. He's appeared on Meet the Press, Face the Nation, HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher, and also uh, Comedy Central's The Daily Show. I think that's all you need to know about Michael Steele because he is very involved in communications, and I'm going to ask him a lot about that uh, going forward. So, Michael, thank you so much for being with sure. us. Really appreciate it. No, my pleasure, Art. Um, it's good to be with you. So my first question to you, as somebody who's always wanted to ask you questions, frankly, why should only Katie Turr do it and right. those folks? You know, it's my turn now. So how did you get into politics in the first place? I mean, you clearly you were, you were very young and you were lieutenant governor uh, 20 years ago. Yeah, to that. I know. I can't believe it's been uh, 20 years ago this year that I assumed the oath of office and, and the office itself. And. It's, it's, yeah, it's been quite a journey. I, I did not, you know, my path has not been one that I plotted or planned in any way. In fact, I, I grew up in Washington, D.C., uh, and was exposed to a lot of politics, but my original trajectory was to become a priest. So it wasn't, it wasn't oh. to, to do politics. In many ways you are. In many ways you yeah, are. Yeah. In, in some respects, that's very true. I, I, I am in, in, in that regard, but yeah, I, I started out on a very different, a different pathway, even though I, I knew a lot of politicians, uh, went to school with their children in many instances. And so just had a, you know, sort of a familiarity with it, but never really thought, oh, yeah, I want to be, I want to be fill in the blank. Um, certainly never wanted to set out to be, you know, county chairman of Prince George's County or state party chairman or even a national chairman. In fact, every entry point for me in politics was something that was brought to me as an opportunity, not something I sought. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess that's just God's way of kind of positioning me and saying, okay, here's something to take a look at. Um, what do you think? And, and it, it, it sort of played to my sense of public service since, uh, I got off of the pathway to the priesthood. Uh, you know, I, I kind of looked, how do I, uh, actualize this call to service that I have? And I, and I think really in terms of formation, Spending that time in a monastery was very important for me. It grounded me in a way that to this day, I still don't fully understand when I approach certain problems or the level of patience that I, that I have in, in certain circumstances. And people look at me and say, I would have lost my mind by now. How do you do this? And, and I really think it is, is grace that I learned and earned from that, from that experience that allowed me to you know, chart a path to success here in, in American politics. So I've been very blessed. I try every, every day still to actualize that service 
in talking about the issues that impact people's lives, trying to hold up uh, our democracy as the beacon of light that I believe it is, and and really castigate those who who want to tear it down. And and even if that's members of my own party, my allegiance is to the flag, the constitution, the country, not a political party. And especially if that party moves uh, in a direction that's antithetical to our our governing uh, values and principles. So for me, I've tried to be consistent and honest about that. I've tried to be true to myself about that. And, uh, you know, it seems to have worked out okay, yeah. I think. What did you do between 2003 and 2009? Those are the years between your being lieutenant governor and being well, I finished, I served from 2003 to 2007. So okay. Okay. Uh, I was in office until January of 2007. And, and then I left there and became chairman of um, GOPAC, which was a grassroots organization that had been founded by Newt Gingrich uh, in the 1980s that really sort of worked with developing the next generation of Republican elected officials. And so I, I followed uh, my friend J.C. Watts in the chairmanship of, of that organization, went back into private practice. Uh, so I was a partner at uh, Dewey and LaBeouf uh, for a couple of years and then got a call from uh, a group of uh, state party chairmen who said, hey, uh, we'd like you to consider running for chairman of the RNC after the 2008 presidential cycle. And I was like, uh, okay, I'll let me think about it. And we lost that election. Unfortunately, John McCain uh, lost to Barack Obama. And uh, I thought, okay, if, if the party would like, you know, my style and brand of leadership, then I'll, I'll pick up the, the task and do it and agreed and ran and won in January of 09. And so I stepped down from my, for my legal work at that point and was chairman for the next two years. And so that, you know, that journey has been an ongoing one for me. And really, again, bringing to the table all the things that I just talked about in, in that leadership is I tell people I can be as partisan as the next guy when necessary, but you also have to, you, you have to find the balance. You have to find that, that space of equilibrium where you recognize, okay, this far and no further. We now it's time to do the work, or now it's time to 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 sort of uh, crystallize all of those efforts. So that was been a big part of that journey for me in many respects. So I'm going to ask you a question that I don't know if anybody has asked you this question recently. Right. Uh, at least I haven't heard uh, you know Katie or Joy or or any of the others ask you this question uh, because you're on MSNBC. Right. Are you still a Republican? Yes, I am. I, I am because I know it pisses them off. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I am. I, you know, look, I was Republican for before a lot of these wannabes showed up. I was out in, in the trenches in in places growing up like Washington, D.C., where it was no picnic to be a Republican, let alone a black Republican. And then moving into, you know, Prince George's County, uh, a significantly majority black county. Um, where I was county chairman of 58,000 Republicans in a county of 800,000 people. So I listen to a lot of these folks who come, who've come online today 
who espouse uh, what I call MAGAism. It's not Republicanism. And I want to defeat it. I want to cut it out of the Republican Party. It has ruined us uh, in ways that I don't think the party fully appreciates. I think there's a sense that, oh, well, we'll get past Trump and everybody will be okay. And they'll, and they'll forget that ever happened. Oh, that was such a nightmare. And now we're so different. No, no, boo, you don't get to do that. You don't get to rewrite that history and that, that experience that people got from listening to you placate Putin and Orban and and condemn our allies and try to walk away from those in need like Ukraine, refer to the, the heritage of black and brown people as S-hole countries coming from S-hole countries and embracing white nationalism and saying, yeah, that there, you know, that there's some really nice Nazis and 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 KKK members out there too. You don't get to walk away from that. You have to account. Politics is ultimately about accountability. And one of my big concerns, Art, has been the lack of accountability that the American people want to hold our political system to. The lack of interest we seem to have, and yet we wail and gnash our teeth at things that that go on, but we seemingly then continue to vote for it. So which is it? Do you want this or don't you? Do you embrace it or don't you? And, and so it's, you know, it's ultimately falls on us as citizens to recognize the wolf in our mists. And you either invite the, the, the wolf into your tent and it devours your baby. And then you, then, then what? Or you get rid of it. Uh, you prevent it from, from entering your camp. And, and that's what some of us are trying to do. So I kind of refer to myself as a Motel 6 Republican. <laughs> so someone's got to keep the lights on and uh i try to do that but um you know yeah there are those who keep uh trying to you know blow the lights out or shoot them out or whatever they're trying to do and it's well, michael it's, the problem is there are no lights well and that there is that there is that aspect of it as well i mean i'm not naive enough to recognize that but then then you get into the into the situation where you go okay fine everybody wants me to leave the party so where do i go <laughs> you know, where, where do you um, go? Did you ever go on Fox News, for example? Are you invited? I worked at Fox for two years mm-hmm. uh, between 2007 and 2009. I was uh, a political commentator on Fox. It's, Fox is a very different place than it was at that time yeah. um, today. Um, and I still have good friends there. Sean is a good buddy. Um, and I scratch my head and I go, is it really worth that, that performance that we see? And so, look, these things all have consequences attached to them. And so my view of it is, how can I try to be as consistent and and honest about where I've been and where I'm going as I possibly can? And And the party is a part of that for me. I'm not saying that I would never leave it. I'm not saying that, you know, I'll just, you know, hold my nose and, and suffer through all of this. But at least to the extent that I can try to have some impact on its current course and try to change that trajectory, I will do that for as long as I can. And when I, when it's obvious that that is just not going to be the case, then, you know, we'll see what comes next. But 
you know, I, I think a lot of folks need to, we need to look holistically at this entire system and recognize that it's, it does not work for us. Our primary system is a joke. I think it's a central cause for a lot of the political uh, craziness that we see because it plays to the extremes on both sides. I've always argued for eliminating the primary system uh, and, and just have like, you know, a, a, what you would call a, a sort of a jungle primary, if you will. And, and cause for lack of a better term, but basically you want to run for an office. Okay. Here's the date uh, for everybody to jump in the pool and the top five people from that, from that election will then go on to a general election sometime later, you know, three, four months later. But this idea that, you know, we've got to, we, we get hardened and hardwired to run a certain way. And I think it's done damage to our system because good men and women who otherwise should win elections don't win their primaries. And we wind up with the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Matt Gateses on the right. And, and some would argue, you know, the hard progressives like uh, Ocasio-Cortez on the left who don't want to give any sway to those who recognize you got to compromise, you got to you got to find conciliation somewhere in order to to get the big things done. So, you know, I these are some of the questions I kind of ponder and deal with every day and, and try to figure out how to navigate and, and as well as have that conversation with the American people about how we look at ourselves and how we govern ourselves going forward. So you're involved in a lot of activities. You're on television. You are a communicator. What is going to be your primary mandate for yourself going forward? Do you have any plans that you can share with us about what you want to do in the next few years? You know, I, I like most things, I just kind of give it to God and say, all right, <laughs> what you got? <laughs> um, you know, I don't have any, any, any direct straightforward plans. It's not like, oh yes, I'm going to, I want to, you know, run for this or I want to try to do that. Uh, I, I've largely left myself open to the moment. Something my wife has yet after our 36 years of marriage understood about me. She's like, I don't understand how you just kind of like exist in a space where there are no, there are no hardened lines. I'm like, well, I always believe the opportunities come in, you evaluate them, you assess them, you either do them or you, or you don't and you move on. And so for me, you know, politically, uh, I will be engaged. I want to have a, you know, certainly play a role in the upcoming presidential cycle. Um, and, and use my, my platform, if you will, voice for that, uh, effort, um, looking at some, you know, opportunities and good potential uh, for some candidates to kind of come in and shake up the system. We hope we'll see. I don't know. But then beyond that, we'll just kind of take it one day at a time and see what comes up. Are you going to be a, a host uh, on uh, MSNBC? Is that you- <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that, that, that's left to the powers that be at MSNBC. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to, to uh, you know, to fill in and guest host for a number of shows which is it's it's good, and I appreciate that they trust me to do that uh, to honor the chair by allowing me to sit in it. And it's you know we'll see. Uh, I'd like to do it if the opportunity presents itself, and if it doesn't, then you know we'll continue to bring hopefully smart analysis uh, to um, to the everyday situations and the news out there, and and keep people informed. Yeah. So 
my podcast and, of course, today our uh, live Zoom broadcast is really primarily intended for people in public relations. So I want to, I want to get public relations in here. Sure. You obviously have worked a lot with and doing, you know, public relations. A lot of it, what you have done is is trying to influence and change people's opinions about who to vote for and what issues to be in, involved with. So my question to you is, how do you see the role of public relations? Let's uh, talk about it politically. In other words, has the Republican Party, for example, not used good public relations? I guess that's an understatement in many ways. Uh, I think, well, I, I think that first off, I think the Republican Party has used public relations very effectively and very well. You may not like the outcome, hmm. and that's a different conversation. But they've been very effective at communicating a narrative, a message. The Democrats, on the other hand, have not. They've not been effective uh, arbiters of public relations. And, I mean, I just give you the most recent polls that show 62% of the American people don't think Joe Biden's done anything. (laughs) What? How do you you allow that to happen? Where, Where does that come from? It comes from a lack of a narrative that connects policy to people. Now, Republicans aren't connecting policy to people. What Republicans are doing are are connecting people to attitudes and to concerns and fears. And you need to be worried about that. And, oh, look what they're doing with LGBTQ and they're trying to groom your kids. And, oh, my God, you know, white suburban women, watch out. They're going to be putting Section 8 housing in your neighborhood. And, you know, stuff like that. And oh, the border, the border. So it's, it's not, it's not a, a proactive narrative. It's a reactive one. Whereas the Democrats don't have a proactive narrative, meaning they're telling their story. Their, theirs is largely reactive. And to the extent that it is, it's not, it's playing catch up on something that they've already done. So, oh, let me tell you what I've done. Well, wait a minute. You, you did that six months ago, but in the meantime, you wanted to talk about the filibuster instead of that. So you, the broader point for those in the, in the PR space and in the social media space and in the communication space is how you tell your story is important. And America still very much is influenced by storytelling. So who decides what the story for the political parties should be? Does Biden decide what his story should be, or do his communication specialists decide that? He should, because he's the one who's got to communicate it. I can't tell I can't tell you a story. I can't give you a story to tell if you don't believe it, if you don't feel it. And if it's not in some respect authentic to you now, you know, good actors out there can do that. But acting is not, you know, at a certain point, you've actually got to do it. You've actually got to execute the policy and the execution of that policy relies on your willingness to fight for it. Your willingness to go charge up that hill in Congress and die on that hill to get that legislation passed. And I think we'll see a good example of that with the debt discussions. How much is the administration willing to fight for holding its ground and saying, we're not negotiating on these things? Now, to the president's great credit, if you want a, you, if you want a, 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 a master class on how to negotiate a deal and to back, back your opposition, into agreeing to your position, watch what the president did at the State of the Union on Social Security, Medicaid, and Medicare. 
flawless. And you can watch the face. I and mean, when you're watching those moments, don't look at the president. Look at Kevin McCarthy. Because Kevin McCarthy's face told you everything you needed to know about what was happening there. He saw his his party basically get rolled by the president. He warned them about it. He told them to keep their mouths shut, sit there, don't say anything. And and the president goaded them right into taking Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid off the table in the debt discussions. And that moment classically defined when the president goes, oh, so I guess we're all agreed. There's there's nothing here to, that we need to do on this. So we're done. That was nice. And everybody was like, yes, yes. And they stood up and applauded. I was like, you guys are so stupid. But that's <laughs> but that's good communication. And that's that's effective use of communication around policy. So what that, what that shows that shows you, you know, you can if you're good at it, you can actually achieve some goals. So what lessons can people in the world of public relations learn from what Joe Biden did at the State of the Union? Well, I think part of it is uh, be smart about what you're fighting for and and be prepared to own it in a way that 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 really is going to matter. Look, if I know that this is important to you, it is harder for me to wrestle it away from you, right? If I know that you don't really care, then I can create all kinds of roadblocks and problems because I know at the end of the day, you're going to capitulate. But if, you know, so really knowing and and owning your message around an issue is vitally important. How you communicate that and to whom you communicate it. A lot of public relations is not about talking to the person in front of you but talking to everybody behind them. Good lesson. And, and so a lot of times, and this is something I learned very early on in politics, uh, and I had, I really had to sort of help the Republican Party during my time, and they've since forgotten it, about how to communicate a message. And I would sit in these meetings, and they were like, well, why are you out here talking about hip hop republicanism? And why aren't you, you know, why aren't you going after Barack Obama on this? And why aren't you saying that? And I look at them, I go, what makes you think I'm talking to you? You're already in the room. You're already in the camp. Why do I need to, if I've got to convince you about this, we have a bigger problem than we, than we need to, you know, that we're ready to admit to. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to everyone behind you. I'm talking to everyone out there. So that's that's the 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 strength of really good communication is understanding I don't need to preach to my choir. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? I I I I'm I, I need to preach to my congregation. All right. I need to get them on board with this. The choir's back there going, hey, da, 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 da. yeah, you know, congregation sitting there like, mm-hmm. What? <laughs> what 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 what? Why why should I believe you, right? And and so this is this is the ultimate strategy is knowing your audience and not allowing yourself to be sidetracked from your true audience because you've got to placate some interest that's already in your camp. And if you've got to placate that interest, guess what? They're not in your camp and you need to rethink whether you need them there. <laughs> so, Michael, why don't you run for president? Ah. 
<laughs> because I haven't had enough gin and tonics yet. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> when I announce, you know, yeah, he, yeah, he's he's hit his limit. <laughs> is there something that would entice you going forward? Do you think? I mean, look, I, you know, call to service is 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 a powerful call and it's an important call. And if you believe you can contribute, you you want to want to be able to do that. But you know, it, it's it's a it's a process. It's a big process. It's there's a lot to, it, to to put your family through that to to make that level of commitment. Um, and and today is it's not as easy a run as it as it once was. As if there ever really was such a thing as an easy run for the presidency. But it is a lot more complicated today. The primary system, uh, voters' attitudes, um, and quite frankly, a country uh, where the citizens probably need to reevaluate their commitment to we the people and understanding what that requires of them in, in their civic duty. So there, there are a lot of pieces there. But yeah, you know, you look at everything. If, if the opportunity presents itself, we'll see. Yeah. Couple of more questions. I know you're busy, Michael. Sure. Thank you. I thank you for taking the time. Much, much, much appreciated. Speaking of time, you're doing so many things. So uh, I'm just curious, what do you do in your spare time, if you have any? Well, uh, the if you have any part is an important piece. Um, you know, what I try to do is I, I really just try to chill and believe it or not, do nothing. <laughs> it's as silly as that sounds. I mean, seriously, sleep late, <laughs> do nothing during that day, and then go to bed. That, you know, it's just because you're always active. You're always bouncing from one thing to the next and your phone calls and emails and, you know, TV appearances and then travel and speeches and, and, and just do nothing. I love, I DJ in my, in my spare, I used to be a DJ in college. And so I love still, you know, uh, I've got a little system set up in the basement and I can either go there or here at my desk. I've got it on computer as well. And I can just you know, like, you know, play music and mix my music and, and just kind of get lost in the music. I love music. So that is a big escape for me sometimes just to kind of turn it on and, listen to sounds and and think how can i take that sound and mix it with that sound and create a new sound you know and, and that i like that i like that part of it i used to like to read but because i read every day i don't like to do that too much in my spare time <laughs> yeah cuz i get i mean i get a lot of books from authors so i've got to read you know some of these folks are coming on my podcast and others are, are on shows and, you know, they're talking about, you know, stuff that's, you know, current events and that they've written about. So you've got, so you get to a point where it's like, oh, all right, well, uh, yeah, because I read three books last week, I don't think I'd want to pick up another one in my spare time and read, you know, so I go to music, which I can just get enveloped by and really dive into and, and, um, so it, that for me is, you know, doing nothing and then, playing with my music. I have two more questions, Michael. Sure. The first is, uh, are you optimistic or pessimistic about where our country is headed? If I'm honest, I'm pessimistic. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know anything else to be but honest. So yeah, I'm pessimistic because it goes back to what I said before. I don't know how much 
the American people really want to fight for the democracy. More people voted for Donald Trump in 2020 than 2016 after four years of that hot mess. 2022, they gave the House back to a Republican Party that fomented insurrection. So I don't know how I can walk away going, yeah, this is going to be great. I think if if I have one real sense of the optimistic and where there is a future, it will be with the Gen Z generation who have a very different outlook, who've not been scarred by the the trauma of the baby boomers, uh, who have, in my view, as the tail, as a member of the tail end of the baby boomers, we've done a lousy job in, in sort of governing and, um, uh, husbanding, uh, resources and keeping the country on a steady path. We have not stepped up to the responsibilities that were very clearly delineated and outlined by the greatest generation. You know, you have, you have people out there today that are embracing nationalism and embracing communism and embracing uh, authoritarianism. And I'm like, your granddaddy died to stamp all of that out. <laughs> and you're now going, you know, Putin's my man and let's, let's invite Victor Orban to come speak and inspire us. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? So, but this generation, this Gen Z has, they have a different lock on this. They have a different sense of it. They're not so far corrupted. Uh, And I I look at, you know, David Hogg and, and his classmates and what they did on the heels of the killing of their classmates there down in Florida they work to change the legislation. They they work to have an impact on the gun culture, and they did. They didn't accept the status quo BS lies about, oh, we can't do anything, and, oh, the gun lobby is so powerful. Yeah, it is. But you continue to see power to it by acting like you can't challenge it. Um, and they're like, no, we're going to challenge the system. We're going to challenge the status quo. So we'll see how that plays out. That's where I have uh, a lot of, a lot of, how should you say, you know, hope, but it's tempered by the fact that, you know, the grownups are still in charge, (laughs) to put it in those terms. And they're they're not doing, they're not doing a, a, a really good job of that, you know, of that effort. I I just, I just want to see how that plays out and and what they're able to do. You know, I look I look at I look at Congressman uh, Maxwell Frost and I say more of him. We'll see. You know, we'll see how the tide changes, but we got work to do. Got one final question for you. Sure. And I'm going to let you go and if this is one of your days where you do nothing at all, I'll let you get back to it. <laughs> no, unfortunately no. <laughs> uh how do you want to be remembered, Michael? Ah, good question. Um, you know, uh, cared enough to try. 
You know, I've never been, my mama, who was a sharecropper, is a sharecropper's daughter. She's still alive. God bless her. And, and uh, taught me very early on what all of this was about growing up in a segregated city, which Washington DC was in, in many parts still at that time in the, the, the mid sixties to late sixties. She, she always said, you, you know, just go out and, and do, do right, do, do, do the right thing and try and try your best. And, and I think a lot of it has to do with how much you care and how concerned you are. Uh, and despite her tough, um, experiences as a, as a black uh, woman with a fifth grade education, she cared enough, uh, to try to give me a good education, to set me on the right path. And she transferred that lesson to me, care enough to try. Um, and so I think probably that would be one, one way would be, look, he cared enough to try. You, you know, you can, you can criticize everything and, or criticize nothing or say good things or don't say anything good, but you, you won't be able to say he didn't try and he didn't care. So. Well, on that note, Michael Steele, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, thank you as well. It was a real pleasure, Art, to, to spend some time with you. You were a very special guest, and uh, keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, I, I will, my friend. Thank you. And I'll see you next on uh, MSNBC <laughs> with whoever is host. Right, exactly. <laughs> so thank you all for joining us today. Thank you again, Michael Steele. I'm Art Stevens. I'm uh, chairman of the uh, Stevens Group. And it's my pleasure to bring you, along with uh, Faye Shapiro and uh, Compro, the ongoing PR Masters podcast series. So stay tuned for the next one. And this is R. Stevens saying take care and goodbye.